Well, good morning, church family. It's good to see you this morning. Choir and orchestra, thanks for leading us in worship. Uh, glad you're here this morning. Um, years ago, I have a very distinct memory after my family and I moved to Bryan College Station. Uh, Mom, Dad, and I uh, were at the mall. And I'll give you background to this story. When I was a young child, I struggled very deeply to ask for things. So instead, what I would do is this. We're at the store. I want something to drink. Uh, I really wish I had had some Kool-Aid. I I really wish I had a juice box. Or maybe we're, we're going... You know, f- fill in the gap, but I would, oh, I really wish, oh, I really wish. And mom was trying to hammer that, uh, without realizing it, that's a very annoying and subtle and passive-aggressive way to ask for something. You need to just ask, be confident and ask for it. So giving you that backdrop, and I was terrified to just come out and ask. So we're walking through uh, Post Oak Mall there in College Station, and at that time there was on the corner of one of the store um, Storefronts, you know, you got the good corner stores, the candy store. And so I, and I remember this so distinctly, I worked up all the courage in the world. And I looked at mom and dad, and instead of saying, I wish, I said, can I please get some sours? This was a watershed moment in the life of five-year-old Wes. (laughs) To which my dad promptly said, no, you don't need any candy. We're going to go home. And I just melted, was crushed, uh, because I, what mom had, mom was trying so hard to just get me to ask what the next part of the lesson is, just because you ask, you don't always get, but that hadn't happened yet. And so the story resolves, mom told dad and uh, that was just the background. And so I got some sours because I actually worked up the courage to ask and say, please. Now I tell you that story to just tell you this, what, what, was, what, what was my mom trying to help me understand? She wasn't trying to help me understand what to ask for. That was not the issue. The issue was not what. The issue was how. It was how I was asking. There was, there's a right way to ask. There's a right way to approach. And there are wrong ways to ask. And there are wrong ways to approach. And as we've been walking through the last several weeks, we've been walking through the book of James. Two weeks ago, we arrived there in James chapter 5, where he calls us to, in all times, in all circumstances, pray. And we're to pray, uh, we're to pray the prayer of faith. I mean, we're to pray in line with the will of God, confident of his character. Why? Because prayer is powerful. There, simply put, there are doors in this world that will not be opened by the power and might of man and the cunning of our own strategies and intellect. There are doors, and specifically doors in hearts, that'll only be pierced by a supernatural move of God who moves at the prayers of His people. We know where to pray. And so we took a little detour last week and this week in what does it mean to pray? Last week we saw what we're to pray, and it brings us to this week. It's great that we know we should pray. Prayer's powerful, and we know what we ought to pray, but how are we supposed to do it? How do we come and bring that prayer before the Lord? And that's what the Lord answers for us today. So I invite you, if you got your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 18, the Gospel of Luke chapter 18. If you find the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to use the Pew Bible in, in front of you, and you can see the page numbers on the screen. Here's what he says. Now, Jesus, by the way, in this just 
context, Jesus has been talking to the disciples about the end of history and, and, the, and, and the signs of his return. So then it says this, now he, Jesus, was telling them, the disciples, a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. Literally, he was teaching them that at all times it is necessary to pray. They ought to pray. There is an obligation, a duty to pray and to do it without losing heart, to do it without becoming filled with despair, to do it without losing their motivation, or put another way, to do it without becoming afraid in the face of great difficulty. That at all times it is necessary that they pray. And if you're, if you're in Luke's gospel, when he says that it is necessary to pray, it's not just that it's necessary to pray in general. Luke has already, if you're walking through his gospel, Luke has already several chapters prior to this shown Jesus being asked by the disciples, hey, teach us how to pray. We hear you praying and we want to pray like you. Teach us how to pray. And Jesus proceeds in Luke chapter 11 to teach the disciples what we looked at and Jesus taught in Matthew chapter six, which is how do we pray? We pray in worship, adoring God, hallowed be your name. How, how do we pray? We pray petitioning that God's kingdom come, his will be done. We, we set aside our agenda and surrender it to the Lord's. We petition to the Lord for our daily needs. We confess our sin. We seek his strength. These very ways of, of what we're to pray, this is what he's already taught the disciples. So when he says they ought to pray at all times, their prayers should be driven by all, at all times by the worship and adoration of God, by the petitioning for his will, by the bringing of their daily needs, the confessing of their sin at all times to pray and not to lose heart, not to grow faint. Now understand before we even walk through this parable what Jesus is implying here. Jesus implies that there's going to be real hardship, there's going to be real trouble, there's going to be times when it seems like God is not hearing and there's a delay in His moving there's going to be times when the disciples are going to be sitting there. They're going to be seeking the Lord, praying how Jesus taught them to pray, what he taught them to pray. But it's going to seem as if the Lord doesn't hear him and the Father's not moving. And Jesus wants to make sure they know how to respond to that. He says, well, pray at all times and not lose heart. And so this is what he says. In a certain city, there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. So there, there's a place when, and there's a judge in this city. There's a judge who administers the law and he says two things about the judge. He says the judge does not fear God. There is that foundation according to scripture that is the beginning of wisdom. That first and foremost greatest commandment that summarizes all of the law and the prophets to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This judge has none of it. He doesn't fear God. Not only does he not fear God, it says he doesn't have any affection, care, or concern for anybody else. Here you have a judge who is in total denial in his life. There's no love for God. There's no love for neighbor. He lives only for himself. He acts only for his self-indulgence and satisfaction. Jesus describes a judge that could not be more self-centered, unrighteous, and likely corrupt. 
It says, in this city there was a widow. And she kept coming to him over and over and over is the way, the way that verb phrases, saying, give me justice. So he says, also in this city, there's a widow. Now we need to understand, a widow, a widow at all times, and even in our society today, when, when, when you see someone who has lost their husband, or if you were to make it even more broad, someone who has lost their spouse, there's certainly a sorrow that comes with that. There are variety of things even in our society today. But when you back up to Jesus' day, there is no government safety net for anybody. For a widow to lose her husband, you are now describing someone who would qualify as the most helpless, powerless, poor, and even as we've seen in the book of James, oppressed group of people. This is someone who has no means to take care of and to provide for themselves. Instead, there, there's some issue, and Jesus doesn't describe it. We don't know who wronged her. We don't know what the issue of justice is, but she, is, she has been wronged, and she wants justice, her just due. There is, there is something behind this that will impact her livelihood. This is a, not just a small infraction or misdemeanor. This is something big. And it says that she knows, and going to the judge, she knows who the one person is that can actually do something about it. Did you notice that? It doesn't say every day she went and complained to her neighbor. It says every day she showed up in that courtroom. Every day she went down to where justice was administered. Every day, over and over and over and over and over and over. She showed up to that judge saying, give me justice. And it says, for a while, the judge was unwilling, or quite literally, he had no intention. There was no desire within him to do a thing about it. But afterward, he said to himself, even though I don't fear God nor respect man, even though I'm unrighteous and corrupt and unloving in every way you can imagine, even though... Because this widow bothers, troubles me, I will give her justice. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. That's an interesting little Greek verb there because it quite literally refers to someone who, who basically nags and exhausts someone into submission and doing what they want. It's actually the literal picture of giving somebody a black eye. So you could read it this way. If I don't do what she wants, she's going to keep troubling me, and she's going to nag me to death. She's going to nag me into a black eye. So here's this judge. He doesn't care about the Lord. He doesn't care about justice. He doesn't care about right or wrong. He's not moved with any kind of compassion for people. He is only out for himself. And in his absolute self-centered rottenness, he is tired of having to put up with this widow every day. <laughs> and in his annoyance, he goes, great. Where's the papers? I'll sign them. Give her justice. And Jesus said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, church family, in the whole passage, when he says hear, there's your command. 
He tells the disciples, he tells us today, you pay attention to what the unrighteous judge said. I don't care about God. I don't care about other people. I just want peace and quiet. Now, will God not bring about justice for His elect, meaning His children, those who have been saved by grace through faith, who've arrived at a point and moment of repentance and placed their faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ? Will God not bring about justice for His elect who cry to Him day and night? who cry, who, who persistently with passion and fervency and urgency, with, with desperation, cry out to Him day and night at all times, and will He delay long over them? I tell you, He will bring about justice for them quickly. Here's what He says, you heard, you heard what the unrighteous judge says, He gave in. He gave in and gave her justice, not because he cares, not because he's just, but because he's flat out annoyed at the widow's persistence. In contrast, you have the righteous judge who cares about justice, the very definition, what makes something right, what makes something wrong. It's whether or not it matches up with the very character and essence and being of God. It's not just because he arbitrarily says, well, this will be right or that'll be wrong. It, it goes back to the very core of his being, of who he is. He is a righteous judge. Not only that, but when he speaks about, will God delay over his elect? This is, this is the one who is, as we saw last week, we call Father. The cries of his elect, those are the cries of his children. And their cries are not for their wish list. It says they're crying out for justice. They are crying out for the will of God. Is God gonna just delay if, if, a, if an unrighteous, unfear, unfearing of God, unloving of man judge will give in out of sheer self-centeredness how much more will one who is loving and compassionate and merciful and just and righteous not respond to the cries of his children? The answer is, of course he will respond. There is no question here that God will respond to the prayers of his people who cry out and persist in praying for his kingdom come and his will to be done. He will respond. That's the first question, but Jesus leaves it with the second. However, when the Son of Man comes, referring to His return, will He find the faith on the earth? See, there is no question of God not hearing and responding to the cries of His people, but there is a question. When Jesus returns, will he find his people faithful to what he's called them to do, confident of who he is? Or will he find his people and little of heart, distracted, 
or to use a phrase from other passages where Jesus talks about his return, eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, and going on as if there is nothing else happening but today. See, church family, when we come to the question of how should we pray, it matters how we pray. It matters if we persist in prayer. It matters, church family, whether or not we despair and lose heart. So understand what the Lord says today is we must not lose heart. We must not grow faint-hearted in despair as we seek to pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. Instead, we must persist in praying the Lord's will, the Lord's agenda in faith. That's the simple point of the passage. How are we to pray? Not despairing, not losing heart, choosing to reject that, but instead we commit ourselves to pray what Jesus taught us to pray, knowing that prayer is powerful, knowing that God God alone has the power to break down strongholds and, and move mountains, and we are to pray persistently, consistently with a desperate confidence, that is faith in who He is. This is what we're to do. We must persist in praying as God taught us to pray and not stepping back or giving up. Understand, Paul will write elsewhere in Ephesians, with every prayer and request, pray at all times in the Spirit, which means your prayer is driven by the Holy Spirit. You know what happens if your prayer is driven by the Holy Spirit? It says elsewhere that the Spirit prays at all times the will of God. If your prayer is driven, if you're praying in the Spirit, you're praying the will of God. With this in view, be on alert with all perseverance, with persistent determination, and every request for all the saints. Church family, we know what we should pray. We should pray in worship and adoration. Hallowed be your name. That when we, when we seek to pray as Jesus taught us, we're going to pray and we're, we're going to get before the Lord and we're going to declare, Lord, you are worthy and you are righteous and, and we're going to reflect and meditate on the greatness and the magnitude of his love. And if we're going to persist in it, it means we're going to worship the Lord in prayer for who he is even when we feel dry and numb and spiritually empty. We're going to persist not because we feel like praising Him. We're going to persist because He is worthy of being praised. See, if we're going to persist in praying what He prayed, we're going to pray for His kingdom come and His will to be done even when it seems fruitless and stifled. It means we're going to pray for God's justice, for His righteous standards to be present in our world even when it seems like Our own judges continue to rule for things against the righteousness of God. In fact, I often wonder, and this is not a thus saith the Lord, church family. This is something that I wonder and wrestle in my my life and, and thinking about us as believers. Most of us, when you come to the Psalms, we don't really know what to do with what's called an imprecatory psalm. You say, what's an imprecatory psalm, pastor? I'll tell you. An imprecatory psalm are the psalms when when you, you hear, you, you read and, and David says, Lord, I just pray that you'd rip their heads off and pluck their eyes out and you bring absolute destruction because they are wicked and set against you. Now, we don't know what to do with them because in part, in part, we either go, are you really allowed to pray something like that? I don't know, I'm not gonna do it. Or we are so vengeful and spiteful, we're gonna pray it in a wrong way. But I often have wondered, at times in our world, which is filled with so much unrighteous judgment, 
I mean, think about the cry of the widow. Lord, bring justice. Vindicate me as righteous. I often wonder, is perhaps the reason that we don't see God's justice brought about more in our world because we're not persistent and active and habitually committed as His people to pray for His justice to come in this world? If we're going to pray how Jesus taught us to pray, then we must pray that His justice comes even when it seems stifled. It means we're going to pray for our rulers even when it seems like they don't care. Because God's will, according to 1 Timothy, is that we would pray for our rulers, that we may be able to lead a peaceful and quiet life, attending to the work of our own hands. It means we're going to pray His will for our children and for our loved ones, even when it seems they don't want it or can't understand it. It means we're going to pray for the lost, family members. Co-workers, we're going to pray for our community. Even when it seems like there are no open doors, we're going to persist and we're going to pray, God, open doors. God, God, convict hearts. Help people see that what this world promises isn't there. We're not just going to pray at once because that was a good prayer point for Bible study tonight, Pastor. Yes. No, we're not going to pray at once. We're going to pray it persistently and continually because if you go flip throughout the New Testament, we're taught that's part of praying God's kingdom come and his will be done. Perhaps there's not as many doors that open because we just don't ever pray it that often. This is what it's going to look like. We're going to be be persistent to pray for, for our needs, our daily needs. We saw that last week. Is there a real tangible need in your life? It's great if you've prayed about it once. But Jesus says, keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. Are we praying for strength and deliverance as we face temptation? You, you felt temptation towards a certain thing in sin and you cried out to the Lord, Lord, give me strength. Yes, good, well done. That is the right way to start. But there is something in all of us that will face temptation and cry out once, maybe cry out twice, but will we cry out day in and day out as many times as the enemy launches those missiles? If we're going to pray how Jesus teaches us to pray, then we must. We must persist in prayer. Prayer demands perseverance, church family, because prayer is war. According to Ephesians chapter 6, talking about our battles not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual powers of darkness, and he walks through the armor of God, and then, then he says, pray. That verse I read you, pray with all perseverance. That's in Ephesians 6. Prayer is warfare. It's not just praying. It's not just prayer is going. When we met Thursday night and we had a wonderful time of prayer for two hours for the University of Texas and for God to move, we went to war. If we really understand what Scripture says, prayer demands perseverance because we face real opposition. You better believe the enemy doesn't want us praying, and he certainly doesn't want us to persist in praying. We must pray, but oftentimes we despair. And we need to understand, church family, if you and I set ourselves to pray the things of God for His glory, for His kingdom, for His will, we're going to face opposition and we're going to face discouragement. We're going to despair because there's going to seem times where we're praying fervently for something and it just doesn't seem to happen. 
And Scripture says there's a variety of reasons there may be a delay in something happening. According to James, could be because we're not asking. Could be because we're asking with the wrong heart, the wrong spirit, the wrong motives. We're not asking for the glory of God, but we're asking for the glory and pleasure of self. It could be that it's we're praying exactly what God wants to do, but he and he alone knows how time is moving and, and it's not the right timing. I think about Hebrews chapter 11 and the saints of old, and it makes this statement saying that all of them died in faith, not having actually gotten to experience the city they were longing for in their earthly life, but that's okay because they weren't actually looking for an earthly city. They were looking for God's promise of what was coming. There may be something God lays on your heart. There may be something you are committed to praying. You may be committed to praying for revival in our church, and you may be committed to praying for awakening in our community and, and on UT. You may be committed to praying for all of that, and God may call you home before any of it happens and you see it. It doesn't mean your prayer was in vain. How many missionaries have prayed and petitioned the Lord fervently and urgently for the salvation of the people they work amongst, only to die, and some of whom it even took their death to be the key that God used to unchain, un unveil those hearts and for those people to come to faith in Christ? There may be different reasons. Spiritual warfare. Daniel cries out. Lord, help me understand this. And you know the story from Daniel 9. An angel shows up three weeks later and he says, Daniel, it's interesting what he says. He says, Daniel, the moment you bowed and set yourself to pray, God heard you. And he immediately dispatched me to answer you. But I've been spending the last three weeks fighting the prince of Persia, spiritual warfare, and have just now gotten to you. There may be reasons there's delays there certainly will be reasons to despair, church family, because as we pray the will of God, understand we live in a world of unrighteous judges, both literally and metaphorically. We live in a world where unrighteousness is there. This is why the psalmist many times says, God, why does it seem that the, I, I know the truth is that you are for the righteous, but it seems like the wicked prosper. The reason for those psalms is because Sometimes there seems to, it seems to us from our limited vantage point to be a delay. We despair because sometimes it seems hearts don't change. You're praying. Is it, all, is it the will of God that we should pray for the salvation of people you love? Absolutely. God says His will is that none should perish but all should come to know Him. Now that doesn't mean that all will come to know Him. Because when you're praying for somebody you love, for some, when you're praying for somebody to come to faith in Christ, you're praying, you're asking God to move, but there's a third party in that equation, and that's that person who has a heart with a type of free will who can choose to reject God's offer of salvation. And that's a hard thing to stomach, by the way. There may be many reasons that there seems to be a delay, but we must not grow faint. We must not lose heart. We must not despair. And you say, well, pastor, how are we not going to do that? Well, great. What did Jesus tell us here? We must not despair, but we must pray. We must persist in praying 
in faith. There's two keys in faith. There's two keys in the passage. We must persist in praying by faith, in faith. Well, what does that mean? Well, one, it means we're confident of God's certain character. We must know God's character with certainty. When we know His character, it produces in us the persistence, the zealousness, the passion, the confidence, the desperation, not the desperation because God is our last hope, but the desperation that recognizes God, you and you alone are the only one who can ultimately take up this cause. The widow, she goes to the judge, why? Why does she go to the judge? Because the judge is the only one who can give her justice. No one else can. When we pray for the things of God, the only one who can actually bring those about is God. And if we're uncertain of his character, if we're uncertain of his willingness to hear the cries of his children, if we're uncertain, you better believe that will fill our hearts. And we will grow faint. But instead, we pray urgently, whereas the unrighteous judge doesn't fear God and his wills and his ways, God takes himself, his will, and his ways with the utmost of seriousness. Whereas the unrighteous judge doesn't care for man, God's eyes are on the righteous. His ear is inclined to our cry. He is filled with mercy and compassion. Does he sometimes delay in some things? Certainly, but whenever that word, and when it says here, and will he delay long over them, it's a word we've seen before several weeks ago in James. It's that word that means to be patient with someone who's doing wrong and rather than retaliating back to give an opportunity. It's the same word used in 1 Peter, the verse I've already mentioned, that God is not slow as some count slowness, but He is patient, wishing that none should perish, but that all should respond. Why does God sometimes seem to maybe be slow by our reckoning as we pray His will in this world, as we cry out for justice, as we, one, because God and God alone is the only one who can see all the strands of what's happening in the world and where it's moving. Two, because God is chiefly concerned with the reconciliation and salvation of lost men and women to Himself in salvation. Where is there? uncompassionate, the unrighteous judge doesn't care for man. God's heart bleeds quite literally for man. Church family, if we're going to persist in praying God's will, what we're going to do is have to constantly check ourselves. Do we really believe God is who He says He is as He says He is? Do we really believe He pays attention? Do we really believe if His eye is on the sparrow and He knows the number of hairs on our head that His, his focus and gaze is on me? Do I, do I really believe that I am on His heart and mind more than the grains of sand on the earth? Do I really believe that He is just? Do I really believe that He is righteous? Do I, do I really believe that He is almighty and possesses? Do I really believe? Do I really trust? Is there a confidence or is my certainty and confidence always tied to my circumstances? Is our view of God more in line thinking God is like the unrighteous judge who if I just nag enough, maybe he might pay attention? Or is our view of God in line with how Jesus taught us to pray, our Father in heaven? If we're going to persist in praying God's will by faith, we got to know and be confident of his character, but we also have to be sure of his return. Do you see what Jesus said? He said, I tell you, will God delay? No, God won't delay, 
But when the Son of Man comes back, contrary to perception, church family, our world is not spinning in chaos. God is orchestrating and working in and through history to a predetermined, destined, and unalterable end. Where the trump sounds, where the heaven parts, where Jesus rides in on a white horse and his kingdom comes, not in part as, in, as now, but in full. And when he comes, all things will be set right. There will be no more injustice, there will be no more crying, there will be no more pain, there will be no more sin. Those who are in sin will receive the just dues for eternity. Those of us who are in Christ will receive God's grace in a way that is beyond what we even can imagine today. But are we sure, are our lives marked and driven by the sureness that He is coming back and He's on His way? Or are our lives marked, are the priorities, the values with which we plan our day, schedule our week, steward our finances and resources, shepherd our kids' lives and their extracurriculars, use our time of retirement? Are they driven and marked by a life faithful knowing our King is returning? Or are they driven by what this world says is pleasurable and they ought to be? Here's the reality. I, I remember distinctly as, a, as an athlete, uh, I, I, when I played football in high school, we played what I call Ironman football. Ironman football is when you only have enough people on the team where most of you play the whole game and you never step off the field. You get tired. And sometime late in the third quarter, you'd see the clock tick and you'd see 12 minutes come up for the fourth quarter. See, you were sure and you knew the game was about to end. And that sureness breathed fresh energy and fire to persist. And no matter how tired you were. Church family, it's the same with the Lord. Are we sure of His character? Are we certain of His return? When we begin to lose heart, we've got to examine our faith. In fact, the persistence of our prayer life is a direct, direct reflector of how much we really trust Jesus Christ. Now, it's why we got to be sure when you're playing, praying for specific things, praying for where a child goes to college, praying for who to marry, praying uh, whether you should marry, praying, fill in all the specific things. It's why you better be sure as you're seeking that you really are praying those things in line with God's will and not what you can easily take a Bible verse and seem to convince yourself is God's will. But if we're going to persist in praying His will, His glory, His kingdom come, His will be done, we must do it persisting in faith. And here's the question, church family, how many things has God desired to do only to find the prayers of His people fall silent? So let's put it all together real quick. We're praying that God would bring an awakening in our community, that God would open doors in the schools, that I would open doors at your jobs and in our neighborhoods, that God would open doors, 
that God would help those who are lost around us, that there would be the conviction of the Holy Spirit helping them see that everything this world has promised, which is built around self-identity, that it, that it won't lead to fulfillment and satisfaction, that they are longing in their soul for, for reconciliation to their Creator. We know that we need to be praying for this. We know that we're, we're urgently petitioning the Lord for this. And I believe full well God would desire to do something. But is that only a prayer we pray once every now and then? Amen. Is it only a prayer we pray when we bring it up on Wednesday night, or maybe when it slips into mind, or is there a persistence that if you were to be a fly on the wall and listen to what we pray, it would be one of the things we are praying constantly, and not just praying it half-doubting, but praying it certain. God, you want to do something in our community. There are men and women made in your image who are dying and do not know you, and we are committing ourselves to pray that, that something would happen that only you can do, and we would see them get saved. And we can apply that with all sorts of other things that are God's will. Will we persist? When I was in college, I spent a good chunk of one summer in Ukraine. And I remember distinctly, we, we, were, we were teaching English and, 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 and living in these churches, and some of these churches had essentially uh, what I'll call museum cases. And in some of those cases, you had big, thick Bibles that were handwritten and these are Bibles from when the persecution under the Soviet Union was harshest, and Bibles were contraband, and, and, and the church would memorize Scripture, and the pastors and the lay people would write it out hand by hand, and they would smuggle these parts. And, and then as you're reading about this Bible, you're reading, and this pastor did this, and then he was shipped to the gulag, and no one ever saw him again. And, and then this pastor, and then he was shipped to the gulag. And, and so here I am in this environment where I am seeing and reading the joyful faithfulness of our brothers and sisters in the midst of persecution that we've never known if you've spent your whole life in this country. And then I remember hearing one day uh, across the courtyard a group of the young people, and they were singing, Our God is an awesome God. And there was a fervency and an urgency in their worship. And I remember distinctly having this thought. That if I were to be back at my Christian university, and I were to say, and by the way, I love the song, Our God is an Awesome God. That was probably my first favorite church worship song as a kid. But if I were to ever say that when I was in college, I would have been met with, that's, that's such an old cheesy song. The chord progression's terrible. And I would have just been met with all these things that are just lousy about it because we got to be really cool, hip, and awesome Christians. And I just remember hearing the love and adoration of God and how they sang. And I began thinking, here are people who for 80 years were faithful to the Lord, were persistent in praying for God's will to come, many of whom didn't live to see the fall of the Soviet Union, but you better believe that iron curtain fell without a shot because there was a faithful church behind its walls persisting in prayer even when things looked bleak because they truly believe that our God is an awesome God. 
And so they prayed in confident, persistent desperation. The question before us today, church family, is will we? Let's pray. Jesus, we look to you in this time of invitation. You know how you've been dealing with each and every one of our hearts. Lord, there's no twisting. If there's someone in here who doesn't know you, we would love to have that conversation with them and and help them know what it would look like to know you. If there's some who have questions about the church, we'd love to help talk to them about that. If there's some who need prayer, we'd love to pray with them. Lord, you know how you're moving. But Father, may you find us faithful to respond to you. May you find us faithful to persist in praying what you taught us to pray and how you taught us to pray. You are an awesome God, Lord. May we respond in right response to you. It's in your name I pray.